Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to share the word of God with you again. Uh, last time I was here, I actually uh, discussed Galatians chapter 2 with you all. And a few weeks ago, I also had the pleasure to preach on the 145th Psalm in Regina. Um, it's an honor to be able to preach from Genesis. And I know that this section in particular, I have some experience with uh, as I've studied some of the topics that we will be discussing. To be forthright, we will be discussing two primary uh, themes, complementarianism and marriage, but specifically what Genesis 2 teaches us about them. Uh, We will also look a bit at the New Testament where we see some allusions to the story that we will be discussing. Last week, we learned about God commanding Adam to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and also where God brought him into the garden to work and take care of it. Uh, We will be discussing a bit about this instruction to Adam later, but to help refresh our memories, I'd like to go back and, and read, starting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, to the end of the chapter. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is, my, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we're going to go through uh, one, well, we'll do a couple of verses for one of them, but we'll start with verse 18, uh, and which says, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So this verse already starts off jam-packed with theological tidbits. First to note is how the covenant name of the Lord is used. Kevin discussed this before, but the capital L-O-R-D that you'll see in the ESV is a reference to the revealed name of our God, Yahweh. Uh, This is how he has made himself known to his people for every generation. But this verse starts off by saying that God said, which could be confusing if you think that God was speaking to someone. But the meaning of this could also be that God thought. Uh, In the story, after bringing Adam to the garden, uh, God then thinks or says that it is not good for a man, uh, for the man to be alone. Now, you will notice when reading chapter one, uh, at the end of each day of creation, God looks out on his creation and declares it good. So how could God have declared mankind as good or very good with all of creation uh, at the end of chapter one? And yet now God states that something is lacking 
or missing. In fact, he goes so far as to say it's not good. Does this mean that God's creation was lacking? Did God miss something while he was making Adam? Well, I think the better way to understand it is that uh, um, God started with Adam. And for a reason, he created him, put him in the garden, and commanded him to not eat of the tree. And yet, this is still the sixth day. So God is not finished with his creation. He is merely doing it in phases. The first phase was to create Adam and to command him, which leads into the second phase, which is the declaration that man is not meant to be alone and the search for a suitable helper. But still, it should grab our attention uh, um, when God declares in chapter one, seven times that his creation is good. And now here uh, in chapter two, that something is not good. It's designed to bring our attention to what is about to follow. But before we uh, unpack this a little bit, uh, what does it mean that it is not good for the man to be alone? There is some different views uh, to this, and I hope that we will see that there is some validity to each. But I do think that there is a preferred understanding. One of the aspects of this not good for the man to be alone is obviously that man is a social being. Mankind is not an isolated species. We are not an island. Um, we need to help, support, and, encourage, and, and the encouragement that comes from others. Humanity would not have advanced without the help and support of many people working together. This brings to mind uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, where it says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Man is more capable together. And not just physically, but also, of course, mentally and emotionally, we need each other as people. But of course, I would have to say that the main thrust of this passage isn't simply pointing to mankind living in community with others. The purpose of this statement is that in general, the the normal way of life is with a marriage partner, specifically one of the opposite sex. This is for multiple reasons. The first and foremost of these is to fulfill the command given to humanity given to to mankind to multiply and to rule and subdue the earth. If a man is alone, he certainly cannot multiply, though he would be able to, of course, fulfill the the command to to rule and subdue. Um, But it is clear from scripture that to have children is a good thing, uh, and it is a blessing from the Lord. This is obviously not something uh, that can be done alone, and so to have a spouse is the only means of accomplishing this goal. Of course, this is not to say that it will be possible for everyone to have children. We do live in a fallen world, uh, corrupted by sin, and often barrenness can hinder a couple from having uh, children. But marriage is not only about having children, for there are many other benefits associated with it as well. As I quoted from Ecclesiastes earlier, by having a partner in our life, we are less likely to fail. There is someone who can encourage us or support us when we fall sick or into hard times. 
Um, I usually don't like to be anecdotal, but I can't count the number of times that I've been sick or, or uh, overwhelmed, and having my wife Samantha there to help me completely changed the situation. And I'm sure any married couple here can tell you tons of stories where their partner was a tremendous aid to them. Uh, and that's a good thing. That's one of the purposes of marriage, uh, to be able to support each other. Another reason is that having a spouse can help us to avoid the temptation of lust. Some people may be granted a special gifting from God to be celibate, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But I would caution that in general, it is better to be prepared for marriage, especially if you have a desire for companionship, um, rather than to try and to be single and to fall into temptation or sin. But if you are given the gift of celibacy from God, then praise be to him, for you can use your gift uh, to better and more diligently serve the Lord than the married may be able to uh, to do. And even if you are unmarried, that doesn't mean that you are to be alone and an island. There is a reason that we as Christians call each other brothers and sisters. It is because we are family. We are all a part of the household of God, and and we are called to support, encourage, and hold one another accountable. So do not use your gift of celibacy as an excuse to be a lone ranger. You need the fellowship of the saints. But marriage is a really good thing for most, as it will help the two to be able to support each other, to possibly be blessed with children, and to avoid falling into temptation. Mankind is not meant to be isolated from others. We are to work, live, and love one another. And this is especially related uh, in a marriage between a man and a woman. The next thing to look at in this verse is the unique little word, Uh, helper or help, which in Hebrew is the word etzer. Uh, If you have heard any type of complementarian or egalitarian teaching, uh, and I will describe those later, (laughs) define those later, you most likely have come across this word. Um, But notice, firstly, that God in this verse is already promising that he will make a helper for Adam. Even though Adam is about to look through and name all of the animals, God already has in mind that he will need to make a helper for him. To spoil the ending for you, uh, this helper is going to turn out to be Eve. But the real question here is, what is a helper? What does it mean? And is this about Eve specifically? Well, helper or help means pretty much what you would expect it to mean. Uh, Someone who aids in a situation to bring about a favorable end. Now, obviously, a help could be in a certain situation, or it could be for a long time. But for someone to be described as a helper usually implies that they will, in general, be aiding someone to their advantage. This general description is being used of Eve, and when it describes her as being a helper to Adam, we know that from the context of this, uh, it will be in in the context of marriage between them for their whole lives. This, there is already a clear role distinction being made between Eve and Adam just by the use of this noun, help. This description, I would say, is representative for all women in their marriages with their husbands. 
And one of the reasons for this, why I would say that, is because when you uh, go and look through the New Testament, uh, we see role distinctions being made uh, over and over again based on gender. This is especially clear if we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, where we see how men are described as being the head of the wife. So if you want to turn in your Bibles uh, there, where where we read from earlier, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to read from uh, verse 22 to the end of the verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the blood with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I will talk about some of Ephesians 5 in this next bit, but basically what we are discussing now is the topic of complementarianism. The idea that the two genders are distinct and yet complements to one another. Now, there is a wide range of views about this, uh, so, but in general, it teaches male headship in the household and in the church. Egalitarianism is the other term that's used, uh, which in general believes that there is no distinction between men and women in roles or value. Anything a man could do, a woman could also do. And for egalitarians, there is no gender distinctions like husbands being the head uh, and and wives submitting. Uh, But I am convinced that that the only consistent uh, biblical view is complementarianism. Husbands are to be the leader, the guide, and they are to take care of their charge and to love and build them up in holiness. This is evident even here in the story of Genesis, for it was Adam who was commanded by God not to eat of the fruit, not Eve. Eve hadn't even been formed yet uh, when Adam was given the command by the Lord. So it was up to Adam to then teach and uphold this command that God gave to him, which then also would include Eve in that as well. Uh, The proper order in a marriage is for the man to be the leader and authority over the household. But with this authority also comes the responsibility and accountability for doing what is appropriate. It is not an authority to be abused, as we often see with kings and rulers and governmental authorities. It is an authority to be used to take care of those who are under it. There is a very scary verse in 1 Peter 3, 7 for husbands. Uh, Let me read this out. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
If you don't love your wife properly, Peter is saying here that God is not going to listen to your prayers. That's a pretty serious verse to remember, that though we as husbands have authority, we are also going to be held accountable for that authority. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives and children. And that's pretty apparent when you consider how Paul related husband headship to Jesus as the head of the church. Uh, Christ being an authority over us demonstrates what it means for a husband or a man to be the head of his wife. It is not totalitarian and abusive. For what did Christ do for the church? He died for it. He gave up his life so that the church would be justified and sanctified. The goal of the husband is to seek the higher good for his wife and children. And this was the same for Adam in his relationship with Eve, a task that he sorely failed when he allowed her to be deceived by the serpent. Now, more evidence to this discussion of male authority uh, is made by Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. By referring to the Genesis account of Adam and Eve, Paul makes it very clear that there is theological and fundamental gender implications uh, that are made from Adam being formed first, and even more than that, from Eve being made uh, from the side of Adam, as we'll see later. So I'm going to read first from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 2 to 3 and then skip down to uh, verses 7 to 12. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Next, I'm going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, where it says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. These verses teach that there is importance to the creation order. And even Paul would say there is importance in the way that they were created. For Adam was formed from the dust, but Eve was formed from the side of Adam. He uses this reasoning of of Adam being formed first and Eve second uh, in two ways. Firstly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to establish that men are the head of their wives and husbands are an authority over them. And secondly, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, to argue for male eldership. So even if you disagree that these are things that you could take away just from simply reading the Genesis account, you you run into the issue of this is how Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, sees this story in Genesis. So the husband is the head of the household and the authority, but he is also in need of his wife's support both in her submission to him and the encouragement and assistance that she can give. Ephesians 5 makes it clear that the role of a wife in the marriage relationship 
is one of submission to their husbands. Now, I don't want to make this sermon all about Ephesians 5, though it is very good. Uh, but if you are interested in, 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 uh, in seeing more about that text, there is plenty of resources uh, online, uh, or I'm sure uh, myself or, or, or Kevin or maybe other elders would be happy to speak about it too, because there is a lot in Ephesians 5, especially about marriage roles. Um, and I know that there are lots of common arguments that are made, too, to try and discredit Ephesians 5 about being uh, different in terms of gender roles. Um, but those are easily, um, easily dismissed uh, when you look at the, the evidence. But uh, this leads to a point of contention that is often brought up when discussing specifically Genesis 2 and the Hebrew word for help. Or remember, that word is etzer, if, you, if you're interested. Often, egalitarians... Remember, people who don't see any role distinction between men and women will bring up the claim that this word is used of God in relation to his people. Now, there are plenty of examples of this, and I'd like to read from, from two for you. Uh, the first is from Psalm chapter 27, verse 9, where it says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. And Psalm chapter 63, verse 8. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. The same word for help is used of God and Eve. Therefore, the argument that egalitarians put forth goes along that if God can be labeled a helper, then that does not mean that women have an inferior role because God is certainly not inferior to man. Now, I think the obvious thing about this argument is that it makes it abundantly clear that the word has no relation at all to the value of a being. For if it did have any connection to value, then women would actually be greater than men because they would have the same value as God. The role of a woman is, a is uh, one of being subservient to her husband, but that does not mean that the value of the woman is any less than a man's. Uh, for as Kevin discussed back in Genesis 1, it is both male and female who are created in the image of the Lord. Women are not lesser beings, and the same punishments that would be applied for killing, stealing, or doing anything to a man would be the same as that would happen to, to someone who did that to a woman. Scripture teaches a role distinction, not a worth or value distinction. Women are just as worthy of human dignity and respect as men are. The reason I'm saying this is because often people try to attack complementarianism on the basis that if men and women have different roles in marriage and in, in, in the church, that therefore there is no equality between men and women. Um, but scripture teaches no such thing, and we cannot agree uh, with that accusation for even a second. For we do not base our views um, on, on culture or our biases, but we base it on the revealed word of God. Who would know better about men and women than the very one who made them? So when we read these words of woman being a helper to, to man, or what we read in Ephesians chapter 5, these are not the musings of some misogynist. This is what the Lord has said by his spirit through the authors of scripture. Now, let me add this brief aside. Though women are to be helpers and subservient, uh, that does not mean that all women are to be submissive to all men at all times, everywhere. For scripture clearly lays out uh, who women are supposed to submit to. 
their husbands. Eve was Adam's helper. And because, as we will see uh, in in the coming verses, uh, that's because Adam was her husband. Women do not need to submit to a man just because he is a man. This is clearly restricted to the marriage relationship. So, in a nutshell, uh, this is in general the teaching of complementarianism, which, again, I see as being the biblical example set for us. Uh, And if there was more time, we could, of course, expand on some some things and even discuss more about church leadership. Um, But I'm primarily trying to stick to Genesis 2 and what it teaches us about men and women. So let's move on to the final part of this verse. Uh, And yes, we're still on verse uh, 18. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll get to the end, though. Uh, The final part of this verse is uh, the quote, fit for him. It is a prepositional phrase uh, that isn't used anywhere else in scripture, but it does have some importance to it, for it defines a bit more about the helper, uh, for it makes it clear that the helper is not going to just be a second Adam. The term has some meaning of being distinct from and yet alongside. To be fit for him does not mean to be the same, but rather the complement to him, that which is necessary for him to be complete. So just from this verse alone, there is already so much uh, teaching about men and women, but we will see some more as we continue on. So now we're going to turn our attentions uh, to verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a a helper fit for him. To remind the reader of what the Lord had, had already done, Moses states again that the Lord had formed the beasts. One thing to note that's a little bit interesting, Samantha told me not to put this in, but I'm going to say it anyways, is that fish are not included in the naming process. Now, I'm not sure if, if that's because he didn't name the fish at all or if maybe uh, just for time's sake it wasn't included. But um, that's just a little interesting thing. But these verses actually teach us something else about the authority given to specifically Adam. By bringing the animals to Adam to see how he would name them, God has given authority to him. For if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, God, after creating things, gave names to them, uh, which demonstrated his authority and power to, to, to do that. And yet here, uh, God is allowing Adam to name the animals uh, whatever name he, he, he desires. This is the first opportunity for man to rule and subdue the earth. But furthermore, this authority given to Adam is going to also extend into naming his wife as well. First by calling her woman in the next few verses, and then later after the fall, Eve. In looking for a helper, Adam searches through the animals first. And of course, uh, contrary to the mantra that dog is man's best friend, Adam finds no suitable helper. Animals can definitely be helpful companions, but even they cannot replace a human mate. But why does God go through allowing Adam to search for a suitable helper, even though he already has in mind to create a woman? Well, probably to illustrate the point further that there would be no other helper apart from Eve for Adam. 
so that we would understand the proper dynamic between humanity and animals. For you cannot replace people with animals, for we know also that animals are not equal to us. Uh, But because there is no suitable helper found, God then moves into the next part of the sixth day of creation, which is verse 21 here. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So the one thought I would like to share about this verse before moving on uh, is that this situation is brought upon by the instigating action of God by putting the man to sleep. God puts him to sleep so that no harm is done to him, as I can't imagine having a rib taken from your side would be a very enjoyable experience. But the man is completely passive in this situation, which brings to mind that during the whole creation of Eve, it is all God's work. To God goes all the glory in the creation of both woman and man as well. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now this, word, this verse uses the word bana, which uh, is often used very literally uh, to mean built. And very often throughout the Old Testament, like when building a house or the altar or many other things, it shows that God, like a skilled builder, uses this rib that he takes from Adam to fully construct the woman. Now, we cannot fully picture how this would have worked. And yet again, it points to the action of God in this situation. And I would also like to stop for a second to again remind us that, as we're seeing here, the woman is the one created second created after Adam is given the command not to eat of the tree, created after Adam had named the animals and searched for a helper among them. Uh, Though the intention of God from the start was to create woman as a helper for man, uh, this is the order of creation that Paul appeals to uh, for male authority in the church and the headship within the home. Now, something really easy to miss from this text, though, is the aspect of God bringing the woman to the man. Sure, in this simple meaning, God physically brought the woman closer to the man, but there is more connotations here than simply bringing her close. This, I would argue, is the first uh, marriage being instituted by God. Picture this. God puts the man to sleep takes out his rib, and then seals it up again. And then from this rib, he builds the woman. And then when the man is awake, the Lord uh, brings her to him to present her as his suitable helper uh, who he was unable to find. God is basically saying, this is your wife, your helper, who I have made. She is made for you, for you to take care of and to lead and to guide. God is there administrating and instituting the first marriage between two of his creations. The man he made first and the woman he had formed out of the man. We know this is the case because of what will be said soon where the author of Genesis inserts a comment into the narrative to define an aspect about marriage. Why would, he, why would he do that? Why would he add this interjection into the text if he already wasn't talking about a marriage? And especially one that is ordained by God. Uh, and what an amazing moment this would be. The final day of creation in which God is going to declare that it is all very good. And the final moment captured in this day in Genesis is the giving of Eve to Adam. 
And because of this, the man cannot help but to exclaim this next verse where he says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, there are some different uh, elements of Hebrew poetry going on in this verse. Things like uh, uh, parallelism, uh, wordplay, a chiasm, if you know what that is, and verbal repetition. But the biggest of these that's probably the easiest to notice and understand is that the exclamation begins and ends with the same Hebrew word for this. Now, obviously, the ESV doesn't translate it that way because in English it wouldn't really make sense to have the word this as the last word of a sentence, but that's how it happens in the Hebrew. And something else that's interesting, too, is in Hebrew, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. Uh, What we're seeing here is Adam doing the classic naming scenario that we see often in Hebrew culture to name something uh, that relates to the circumstance of its origin. Uh, For example, Moses, the name Moses, uh, sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out. And what happened with Moses? Well, he was drawn out from the Nile, right? And then he also, of course, later draws out his people uh, from Egypt. Or the name Isaac, meaning laugh, relates to when Sarah, when hearing the angels speak of her being pregnant in a year from now, uh, laughs (laughs) because she didn't believe it. And something I would like to remind you of is that, again, Adam here is the one naming his wife and all women thereafter by giving them the name woman. And it shows that he has a special authority given to him that he uses to name the person standing before him. And this is also the first usage of the traditional kinship formula that is sometimes used in the Old Testament. The saying of flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone is used when referring to a relative about the close bond that they share. Now, in English, we normally use blood as a symbol of being a close family member. But in Hebrew culture, this is what they use of of flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, which maybe actually stems from this Genesis account here. A couple of examples of this are is when Laban uh, uh, is speaking to Jacob. He calls him this in Genesis 29, 14. Or another time is when Abimelech, who is speaking to his relatives in Shechem, uh, also mentions uh, this phrase as well. And that's in Judges 9-2. So there are a few examples of this flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone that we see in Scripture, um, which maybe, yeah, originated here from Genesis. But let's move on now to verse 24, which says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This verse is a shift in the narrative. For now, Moses interjects here to add application to what we have been reading. Moses pulls us out of the story for a second to then make a critical point for the reader to learn and understand. Now, this point has many principles that we need to discuss, so let's go point by point. Now, probably the most... uh, the, the most clear thing that we see from this verse is that marriage is defined here specifically between a man and a woman. Even notice, what does the man leave to be united with his wife, his father and mother? There is no other definition of a marriage in all of scripture for anything other than a man and a woman. Scripturally, this is the case. And even though I know that culture 
has decided to use the, to allow the use of, of the word marriage uh, for same-sex relationships, they are not a marriage as defined biblically. It would be similar uh, to taking a pig and painting it white and putting some black spots on it and then calling it a cow. If you want to call it that, you can, but then the meaning of words is gone. So, um, so-called Christians who support homosexuality will insist that what is important is a loving, committed, monogamous relationship. And they use those words to define what a marriage is. They will try and attack things like, well, it's not about kids because uh, some couples are barren. Or it, it can't be about roles because sometimes it's the husband who cooks and cleans and it might be the wife who is the breadwinner. Um, these are all distractions, though, to try and confuse people from understanding what a marriage is and how it is defined. Scripture do- does define marriage for us. And I would say it is intended, of course, to be monogamous. Now, the the polygamy that you do see happening in the Old Testament, it it is not prescriptive. That word is just a a fancy word that means it doesn't teach us that polygamy is a good thing. So the examples of polygamy that you would see are not necessarily comments or or teaching for us to adhere to, to say, oh, this, you should be uh, polygamous. Rather, it's descriptive, telling us what people did. Right? It's just a, a record of fact, of history, right? that, that many of, of people in the Old Testament uh, stories that you read of were polygamous. But, um, and, uh, so one thing to say about that is, of course, there's so many stories in Scripture of people not doing good things. And even though the text itself may not say that what they did was bad, the reader who knew the law, and especially us as New Testament Christians who have even more revealed word of God, we are supposed to be able to go and read through and understand that what we're reading might not be good, right? They might be stories of, of, of bad things that are happening, and we know that they're bad because of the law, because of the revealed word of God. Um, but <laughs> to get back on track, the scripturally defined marriage uh, ordained by God is to be between one man and one woman. Whether they have children or not doesn't matter. Were Abraham and Sarah not married until they had Isaac? Or whether the husband cooks and cleans and the wife makes the money doesn't matter. The definition is based upon a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife. Do not get confused about the definition of marriage and let people distract you from the clear teaching that's in scripture. But let's talk about one of the parts, uh, leaving his father and mother. Now, this section may be quite odd when we consider that normally what would happen in Hebrew culture is that the woman would leave her family and then go and live with her husband, who actually probably still lived with his parents or if not with them nearby. Um, and, and also something that's interesting, too, is that in Hebrew culture, honoring your parents was an integral part of the society. And as we know from the law, it was also commanded to the Israelites to honor their father and mother. So what does this mean, then, to leave your father and mother? Well, I think that because of the stark contrast being made here to teach that while it is good to honor your parents, Please do not hear me say that, I, that you shouldn't honor your, your father and mother. You should, uh, even as an adult, that when you are married, your first obligation is to your spouse. 
If you think about it, the very first thing instituted by God is marriage, not parenthood. Marriage is the highest form of union between people. This is what it means when the verse says that the husband will hold fast to his wife. This is a word that has strong connotations of, of sticking, holding, cleaving. It, can even, it is even used in another spot to mean soldering something together. This connection between a man and his wife is supposed to be like two things soldered together. Um, Jesus even calls marriage more than just a human union when he connects it to God as being the one joining them together in Matthew chapter 19. So I'm going to turn there and and read uh, a little bit, uh, if you want to turn with me, to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to be reading verses 3 to 9. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Marriage was designed by God from the beginning to be an unbreakable covenant. So strong and powerful that the only thing that could violate it, violate it is the worst form of covenant breaking, unfaithfulness. Adultery is similar to turning to idols or, or, or practicing idolatry and forsaking the Lord by worshiping something else. Dear brothers and sisters, please hear me today. Our culture has tarnished marriage in so many ways by redefining it, by discouraging it, and the most heinous of all, in my opinion, by emptying the importance of it. What I mean by this is that marriage is no longer considered to be a lifelong, uh, above everything else, life-changing, ruthlessly committed covenant. Marriage has been reduced to a romanticized, feeling-based experience. When people feel really in love with each other, um, it just kind of makes sense maybe for them to, to, to get married because uh, it's something you feel like you should do. Uh, And when you no longer have those feelings, well, the solution then is divorce. People don't consider marriage to be the mixing of two lives into one forevermore. They think of it more like a sports club that you join when you like it. But then if you aren't enjoying it anymore, well, you can always back out. But look at the words of Jesus. They are no longer two, but one flesh. He even said that God is the one who joined them together. I don't believe there is any stronger oath and covenant that can be formed between humankind. And it shouldn't be easy to back out of. We need to teach and encourage the sanctity of marriage. It's not just something you feel your way into and then out of. So to those who are married, I say this. Recognize the importance of the covenant that you have made with your spouse. Your marriage is not defined by how happy or satisfying it may be at times. Uh, If you and your spouse have an amazing relationship, praise the Lord, right? Continue to cultivate that and enjoy the blessing of marriage. If you are having difficulties, that's okay too. 
uh, rec- recognize that and seek help from fellow brothers and sisters. Uh, and there will, of course, be sin and shortcomings from our spouses and us as well. Uh, but remember, remember the grace that God showed us in our sin and our short- shortcomings. And let us also share that same love and grace with our covenant partner. To the unmarried, I say, don't feel your way into marriage. It is a serious thing. Keep your head on straight. Look for a suitable companion. Just like how you wouldn't want to pick bad players for a sports team, you want to be careful with what spouse you choose because you will be making the most important human covenant that can be made with them. So remember this verse that we just read, which is quoted twice in the New Testament by Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in Ephesians 5. For it firstly defines marriage for us as between a man and a woman. Uh, And secondly, it demonstrates the important, life-altering, highest form of covenant that can be made between people. But after this interjection by Moses, he, he goes on to finish the narrative off, I mean... Obviously, chapters were not uh, there in Scripture (laughs) when it was initially written, but uh, this kind of is a good place to stop. But the next verse, verse 25, says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What this verse teaches us is not that nudity is the preferred way to live, though I know some have taken that uh, to mean that or taken that too far, but rather it shows us the innocence of Adam and Eve that there was nothing wrong for them to be naked before they ate of the tree. They felt no shame for there was nothing to be ashamed of. But of course, this situation changes with the fall of man, which I know Kevin will do a great job of explaining to us uh, next week. So that's, uh, that's it for my exposi- exposition of the text, but I would like to, in short, do some, some review of the key themes that I have talked about today. And again, the two points that I hoped I have covered decently is uh, that of complementarianism and also of marriage. Scripture teaches a difference between men and women, not in value, but in roles, especially in marriage. Men are to be the head of their wives, and the wives are to submit to their husbands. If this is the God-ordained order of things, then when we submit our hearts to the Lord, it is imperative that we also follow uh, the, the things that he has said for us to do. The thing to note as well is that these aren't just things imagined um, that are a big stretch uh, uh, to view from the text, but rather this is direct teaching from Scripture about these different roles. Uh, And the biggest application that comes out as well, uh, especially for us as New Testament believers, is church leadership um, by only allowing men or males to be elders. We also discussed uh, at the end here the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman. And from those two, they become one flesh. Ray Ortland Jr. puts it this way. It is the profound fusion of two lives into one, shared life together by the mutual consent and covenant of marriage. It is the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. Don't take marriage lightly. It is the first bond ordained by God. And though culture tries to tarnish it, God's word still says what God has joined together. Let man not separate. Thank you. And uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, I, uh, I thank you for this day and, and for your word that you have given us. 
Uh, I pray, Lord, for those who are married here, that you would help us to to always remain faithfully committed uh, to our spouse, Lord, to to uh, be able to support and encourage them in the way that we're supposed to, for husbands to be good, uh, honorable, holy leaders for their families, to to nourish and cherish their wives and children, uh, to build them up in holiness, to always keep in mind um, what Christ himself had done for his church uh, by giving himself over for it, Lord. And, I, and so I pray that, that we as husbands would always uh, keep that in mind in our lives, Lord, uh, that we would desire to seek the best way to, to love and to take care of our family, to seek the highest good for them. I pray for, for wives that they would, uh, they would humble themselves, Lord, to be able to submit to the leadership of their husbands. I pray that, that no offense would, would, would come, Lord, from, from hearing these words of Scripture where it's so easy to, feel, uh, to desire to feel prideful as if you know, we, des- we deserve to be first place or anything like that. I, I pray that, that um, wives would see that, that, that God has shown great grace and love to them, and in the same way they should show that to their husbands, especially by submitting uh, to them. We thank you, Lord, that that in our marriages we are not uh, mirror images of one another, Lord, uh, that you have blessed us with these differences uh, to complement one another. And so I pray that for for all those who are married to to recognize that, how how they can best um, uh, fill their role in their marriage to, to love their spouse and, of course, above all else, to bring glory to you. And also, Lord, I would like to pray for those who, who are here who are unmarried. I pray that they would uh, have clear heads, Lord, uh, when considering marriage. That when they look for a partner, Lord, that you would help them to see uh, what godly co- uh, characteristics uh, there are supposed to be in their spouse, Lord. That they would not... Uh, be tempted by the fleeting things of this life, uh, Lord, whether it's uh, looks or or, uh, um, or fame or, or anything, Lord, that, that is only temporary, Lord. But I pray that, that the young men would, would seek a, a uh, God-honoring woman and that the women would, would seek a, a man who is, who is after, the Lord, uh, after the Lord's own heart. Uh, I pray, Lord, yeah, for the unmarried, uh, especially in this time where uh, there are so so much there is so much secularization, uh, there is so much um, even even uh, tarnishing of marriage within uh, some evangelicalism, Lord. I, I pray that they would stand firm, read your word, seek it, and desire to to live by it, and and to 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 look for a spouse who who also desires that, Lord. Um, I thank you. For your, your word that, that has also clearly defined marriage for us, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to always stand bold and firm, uh, to, to stand by what your word says. Help us, Lord, to not fall into the distractions or the, the temptations that come from culture and its, its redefinition of marriage, its profaning of marriage. Help us, Lord, rather to, to hold fast to your word at all times. Um, and I, I thank you that, that you have preserved your word, Lord, and that you, uh, you also give us your spirit by which we can be encouraged, by which we can uh, understand your word uh, to best live it out. Uh, so I pray, Lord, in all things, in all ways, that we would be uh, uh, faithful servants to you, Lord, uh, to bring about your honor and glory uh, through following your word in our marriages and in our lives, Lord. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for everyone here today. I pray, Lord, that we have been encouraged by your word uh, and that we would give praise to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray.